you pray with me before we look at the text this morning? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, it's our privilege again to be in this space, so we pray for peace in the month of August as this school goes through a transformation where they prepare every hallway and room for the arrival of the students in just a few weeks. We pray for the teachers as we have for 10 years. We pray for the administration, God, that they would lead well and make good decisions. God, that the, your sense of peace will be in this school. As students will come here and find out uh, what they're able to do. Uh, people will speak life into them and speak positivity into their future and help them discover what you created them to do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, welcome everybody. We're so glad to have you here. My name is Michael. I'm one of the pastors on staff. Uh, if we haven't met, I'd love to say hi before you go. We're really glad if it's one of your first times here to Mill City Church. Uh, you picked a particularly heavy day in terms of the topic. We've been talking about the Bible for the last few weeks, and today we're going to tackle one of the questions that many of you wrote in when we asked you what you wonder about the Bible, and that question is, why is there so much violence in the Old Testament in particular? Why is there so much violence in the Old Testament? And so, of course, the teaching team decided to assign that one to me. They all kind of looked at each other and said, that seems like one Mike should tackle. Okay. All right, so uh, I had a really good time reading about this and trying to research it and then shrinking it down into about 25 minutes for you today. Uh, I will apologize on the front end. This is a thick question, and so if it seems a little more teachy than preachy today, I apologize. I couldn't figure out another way to really give you a substantive answer to the question without doing it that way, so hopefully it'll still be engaging. And I'm sure you're going to have a lot more questions. Uh, Professor John and I are going to teach a class this fall on how to engage the Bible and interpret the Bible for eight or nine weeks at least. So if you have a lot more questions on this topic, consider signing up for that class in the fall during our equipping hour. We'd love to tackle some of those things in more depth there. So here's where I want to start. I think one of the biggest challenges about reading the Bible is that Bible verses are easily misused. Have you ever heard somebody misuse a Bible verse where they kind of just pull it out of context and, and make it mean something that it's fairly obvious it doesn't mean, or maybe even for their own purposes, they're using it to try to justify something or motivate people in a particular way. This is easy to do because the Bible's a really long book, and it covers over a thousand years of human history and all kinds of different cultural settings that it is addressing. So if you just grab a random verse out of the Bible and try to make meaning out of it, you can come up with all sorts of weird interpretations, and unfortunately this happens all the time. Now, some of you heard me tell the story about a way that I used to misuse the Bible uh, consistently as a teenager, so I'm going to recap it for you. I'm really ashamed of this the more I went over it, and I know that as a teenager you're working things out, you're immature, and you kind of don't know what you're doing, but as I tell you this story, I'm deeply still ashamed that this is, this is the way I use Scripture. So the setting is a youth group Sunday school class with not very many kids, like eight or ten kids, consistently on Sunday before the regular worship service, we'd meet, we'd talk about things, we'd study the Bible together. My younger sister, who is two and a half years younger than me, is part of the group. And for some season of time, I don't even know how long, she probably could tell us how long it was, um, I would consistently say, cite a Bible verse whenever my sister would try to speak up in the Bible study. And that Bible verse was 1 Corinthians 14.34, which if you look it up, says women should not speak in church. 
If they have any questions, they should remain silent. If they have any questions, they should ask their husbands at home. So now, if you're 15 and an idiot, it's pretty funny to say to your younger sister, you can't talk, it's, uh, the Bible says so, you can't talk. And my little buddies thought it was funny too. My sister now preaches to thousands of junior hires every week at Eagle Brook Church. Thousands of people. So thank God she didn't listen to idiot 15-year-old Michael. I look back on that now, and while it's like you can sort of see why it might have been funny at one point, it's really not at all funny now. Because even though I didn't know what I was doing, I was misusing scripture to not only shut down someone's voice, someone in my family's voice, a female voice, which then has had to struggle for uh, you know, many reasons to find space where her voice was valid in the church in the first place. And I'm deeply ashamed of that. Now, uh, if I give you a 30-second interpretation of that scripture that I've since learned when I became less of an idiot, I learned that there was a whole group of time, a period of time, where worship services are totally out of control in the Corinthian church. Paul's writing to them and saying, look, there are these, these uh, groups of women who are in the worship service. Most likely they don't speak the language that the worship service is in. And they sit together because they're not allowed to sit with the men in the front of the worship service. And they're probably talking. And maybe they're talking in the worship service about figuring out what's going on in the worship service and trying to help each other. Or maybe they're just talking about what they're going to do later because they can't understand anything that's happening. That would be understandable too. Either way, Paul's saying this is disruptive and it's in a, bunch of, a list of a whole bunch of other things that were really disruptive in the worship service that he's addressing. And says, let's try to keep these ladies quiet because we can't have the worship service. Their husbands speak the language the worship service is in. They're all married because that's the assumption in that culture. So when they go home, they can ask them. In no possible interpretation was that intended to speak to 15-year-old Michael to say, make sure your sister doesn't speak in the youth group in the mid-90s, right? But that's what happens with the Bible. All of us have probably done this. People do it all the time. They lift verses out, and in the Old Testament, it's even easier to do than with some of the New Testament texts because there's lots of confusing Old Testament texts and stories and they address all kinds of cultures that are so different from our culture. And so it takes some work to understand what the author meant and how we should apply that to our lives today. So we're going to look at one of these texts today, and I'm hoping to use it as an example of a way that you can start thinking about interpreting violent texts in the Old Testament well and other texts that are confusing to you in the Old Testament well. Uh, what do we do with these texts, especially the violent texts? That's our focus today. So before I dig into the story in Genesis, I want to say, so you know where I'm coming from, especially if you're new. I have biases like everybody else. Here are, here are mine. I firmly believe that the Bible is the inspired word of God, the whole thing. I think it has all kinds of crazy stories in it that are hard to understand. I think God put those stories together for a reason, and part of our role is to figure out what the reasons are. I don't think there are any errors in the Bible, and I treat the Bible as authoritative for my life and the life of my family and the life of this church. Those are my assumptions. So maybe not all of you share those assumptions, and that's okay, and we could discuss them at another time, but I want to tell you, that's kind of how I'm coming into this text as I look at it this morning. I want to believe that God inspired it, 
I want to treat it as authoritative, and I want to treat it as if it doesn't have any errors in it. Here's a story that some of you be familiar with. I'm going to give you the beginning of the story, and then we'll come back to it at the end of the sermon. This is a crazy, difficult story, especially if you're a parent, where after God promises Abraham to bring a whole nation out of his son, Isaac, he's going to give him many descendants. Then he tells him, you have to go and sacrifice your son, Isaac. You have to kill your son, Isaac, as a worshipful act to me. Here's exactly what it says in the scripture from the NIV. Sometime later, God tested Abraham, and he said to him, Abraham, here I am, Abraham replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. Pause. Okay, if we lift this verse out of the Bible and say, what is this God like? What conclusion do we come to? It's a violent God. A God who commands child sacrifice. A God who commands child sacrifice of somebody who he loves and has worked with and lived with over the years. I understand why people who read the Bible and come across texts like this go, I don't want to have anything to do with that kind of God. Or this God in the Old Testament seems totally different from the God in the New Testament. How do we make sense of it? It was so common in this time in the ancient Near East for deities, gods, for people to think that gods were expecting them to sacrifice their children. That's a normal thing in this part of the, uh, of the world at this time. And it's one of the reasons why, even though Abraham challenges God at other times, he doesn't question this command at this point. He doesn't say, whoa, 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 that doesn't make sense. Instead, he just gets ready to do it the next day. I think this is a horrible story. I wrestle with it a lot. It's very difficult to understand. How are we supposed to make sense of passages like these? Let me begin uh, helping us interpret it by giving you some tools to think about the way in which we interpret texts like this. So first, here's this quote from an Old Testament professor up at Luther Seminary, Dr. Fred Ein. He says, God's use of violence, inevitable in a violent world, is intended to subvert human violence in order to bring the creation along to a point where violence is no more. God's use of violence, Professor saying, is inevitable because the world is violent, because we are violent, because as sin entered the world, one of the first things we did was start to kill each other. Because that's the world that God is interacting with, it is inevitable that there's some violence in it, and his violent acts or supposed violent acts are intended to subvert human violence, to counter our own violence in order to get us to the point where there isn't any violence anymore. Now, you might agree with that, and you might disagree with that. The thing I like about the quote is that it points to an end that I think we have to start with, which is God's intention is that there would be no violence. God's creation does not have violence in it, and there's no violence in God. And so as we dig into this, one thing I want to make sure that 
uh, is clear from my perspective. I don't think the Bible should ever be used to condone violence against other people. And it has been used that way many times over in church history. It's been used to condone holy wars by nations against other nations. It's been used to oppress minorities, women, people of different sexual identities, gender identities, all sorts of folks. Uh, slaves have been done violence and just had that violence justified by Scripture. I think that's wrong, unequivocally. And if we get the sense ever that God is telling us to hurt someone, reject that voice as not from God. And talk to someone about the thoughts that you're having in that direction. The Bible should never be used to condone violence. Some of the scholars that I surveyed, they created these different categories for how to go about interpreting these texts. And I kind of summed them up because there was way too many. And I, I put them in these four buckets for you because I thought maybe this would be tools for you to think about how do we interpret texts like this Genesis text. So the first one is that some people approach these violent texts or texts that have to do with violence in the Old Testament by defending the use of violence, by finding a way to say uh, there was a just cause for this violence. There was a greater good that came out of uh, that violence. Um, there was a balancing of good and evil that, that happened. Or the use of violence in this text was much better than everybody else that was using violence at that time. So there's a whole host of scholars who look at these texts and say, this was justified for one reason or another. And maybe that's the understanding that you've had. The second category that I created for you is folks who are looking for a d deeper layer of meaning in any one of these texts. So even though it seems maybe like violence is being condoned in a text, is there something deeper that we're supposed to get to as we read it and interpret it? Um, I'm going to use one of these and on this Genesis text in a minute. It's called Christocentric interpretation, which just means reading everything through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, reading it through his experience on the cross. Some people who say we should interpret some of these stories symbolically. Some of these people say that we're progressively learning more about who God is, and some of these stories represent early understandings of God. Then there's a whole group of people who just want to reject these stories altogether. From the second century on, there are people who want to just cut it out of the Bible altogether. And still a whole group of people who say, we can't have these stories in Scripture. They, they critique uh, the use of violence and God's use of violence or commands of violence. They say that maybe the Bible isn't always right on all of these things. They think that the proper response to it is to protest these, these forms of violence with acts of peace and mercy from the Christian community. There's also a group that just say, there just seems to be no way to answer these questions. And through my trust in God, I leave some questions unanswered because they seem like they don't have a good answer. So maybe you can look at that list and say, this is the one I'm used to. This is the category I'm, I'm most likely to fall in, or the one that I learned if, I've, if you've had previous church experience. Um, I think there's a space for any one of these, and different ones have better merits and worse merits, and that's part of the work that we have to do, figure out how we want to interpret things. But I'm going to suggest that we need to look for the deeper meaning this morning, and I want to do that by using what Jesus did on the cross 
to interpret this Genesis text that seems very ugly and very violent. And I was, as I was preparing this sermon, the story of Jesus being arrested kept coming back to me as a really important uh, text. And so uh, we'll flip to that in the book of Luke. Keep in mind now that the disciples have had lots of history. They've learned lots of history of God's people acting violently towards their enemies. I think this is a huge turning point in our understanding of what it was, how it is God wants us to respond to violence. So here's what it says when Jesus is being arrested. While he was still speaking, a crowd came up, and the man who was called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He approached Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus asked, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? When Jesus' followers saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, should we strike with our swords? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his right ear. But then Jesus answered. This is a hugely important answer. Then Jesus answered, no more of this. No more of this. No more of responding to violence with violence. And it says that Jesus touched the man's ear and restored it or healed his ear. Right there. In the book of Matthew, in the same exact story, we get a little bit more detail. When Jesus is arrested, he says, after the man's ear is cut off, he says, put your sword back in its place. For all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my Father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? Don't you think that I can win this physical battle against these people if I want to? But no more of this, Jesus says. This is not who God has called us to be. We are not people who respond to violence with violence. And Jesus, who knows what is about to happen to him here, is preparing himself to suffer violence in order to overcome violence. So when we look at this cross this morning as a, as a symbol that we hang up every week to remind us of the centrality of Jesus' death and resurrection to the Christian faith, when we look at this cross this morning, we don't see a symbol of warlike victory. We see a symbol of a God who becomes a sacrifice and suffers human violence in order to overcome violence. We find a God who's willing to allow people to harm him and kill him even though he doesn't have to do that in order to absorb the sin of the whole world and offer salvation and freedom to everybody else. In Hebrews chapter 12, we get this little insight into why Jesus decided to do this. It says, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, 
and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. It would have made more sense to the disciples if when the soldiers came, Jesus would have said, now's the time for us to rise up and reestablish Israel as the political power. That's what they were expecting. That's what they were hoping for. That's what they were used to. And that little phrase, that little exclamation in that moment where Jesus says, no more of this, I think is a turning point. No, you don't understand. This is not God's intention. For the joy of knowing that he would set people free from the violence that came as the result of sin, Jesus says, no, I'm healing this man's ear and I'm letting them take me. The nonviolent actions of Jesus on the cross has got to be the lens through which we view every other text in the Bible, I think. I'm suggesting to you that when you look through Scripture, a key question to ask when you come across one of these texts that's confusing to you is to ask the question, how do I read this text in light of what Jesus did on the cross? How do I read this text in light of what Jesus did on the cross? How does Jesus' death and resurrection and nonviolent salvation influence the way I interpret whatever's happening in the Old Testament or in the New Testament? So let's take a look back at this Genesis text. Genesis 22, uh, 12 wraps up the story. Abraham gets... Isaac ready. He gets all the things prepared. They go up the mountain. I honestly don't like to review this story. I don't even like to think about this story as a parent. They go up the mountain and you can imagine the conversation he's having in his head. I have to trust that God knows what he's doing. Maybe he'll bring Isaac back from the dead. He told me that Isaac was going to be the future of all this blessing. How in the world can he ask me to sacrifice my son? But he keeps going. And he even says to the servants several times, we will be back after we're done worshiping. Somewhere, as a dad who loves his kid, he's thinking, I don't know how we're going to get out of this, but somehow we're going to get out of it. They walk all the way up this hill. They get to the place where he's supposed to offer the sacrifice. And when Abraham reaches for the knife... God says to him, Genesis 22:12. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God, because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Maybe you read that part and you go, that doesn't really make up for this trauma that these people just went through. But you've got to put it in context. And you've got to realize that part of what God's trying to convince Abraham of is that he's not like the other ancient Near East gods. Because Abraham and Sarah had worshipped other ancient Near East gods for years, and he's trying to convince them, I'm the opposite of all those other deities. And I would never ask you to sacrifice your son. When we look through this story through the lens of the cross, 
we see that God's plan the whole time was not to ask us to sacrifice things of ours, but to become the sacrifice for us. And in that way, the God of the, of the Bible is the exact opposite of all these other gods that are demanding sacrifices to keep them happy. And God says, no, I will become the sacrifice. And Jesus, for the joy set before him, will become the sacrifice that is necessary to reconnect us relationally with God forever and ever. So when we lift these Bible passages up, let me invite the band to come up. When we lift these Bible passages up out of nowhere, we're in danger of misusing them terribly. The one tool I want to give you, and this needs to be a longer conversation, I encourage you to think about the class, is to think through every text through the lens of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. Because Jesus is the best sense of God's identity that we have. It's the, he's the perfecter and the pioneer of our faith. So if something doesn't square with what Jesus did on the cross, then we need to look for a deeper meaning in it in order to understand what it is that God has for us. Let me finish by, by saying this question about why there's violence in the Bible and why people have used violence or justified violence with the Bible is one of the main reasons why lots of people don't want to have anything to do with Christianity, right? Many of you have sent me articles and podcasts and YouTube videos of people saying, how can you trust the God of the Bible who's out to uh, act violently in these ways or asking people to act violently in these ways? And this is one of the uniquenesses of Christian faith. I think our response has to be our central understanding of God's approach to violence is represented by the cross. When we start with the cross, we have a God who loves us so much that he would become a sacrifice for us, that he would fight the powers of evil and sin and death on our behalf and offer us the gift of eternal life in exchange. And even in the midst of experiencing suffering and violence that he didn't have to, he looks at us and he says, Father, forgive them. Because they don't know what they're doing. That's the God that when we gather for worship here on Sunday in the 21st century, that I want to worship. And the one that calls me to see any acts of violence as against God's nature, but rather become somebody and be part of a community who are willing to give themselves up to express the love and the mercy and the justice of God to people who are desperate to see authentic expressions of that. And that's our opportunity. I know that this little sermon doesn't answer this question fully. I think why violence exists in the Old Testament is because we are violent and have been violent since the day Cain killed Abel. God doesn't want that for us. That's not God's intended end. And when God recreates the heaven and the earth, it won't exist anymore. And so we're, we're invited to join God's work to end violence in all of its forms, and to never use the Bible to justify violence, but to look to the cross as our example. Let's pray together. Jesus, we come into your presence today and we know that 
we've got lots of questions we can't always answer. And we know that you are okay with us asking those questions of you. So God, we pray that Mill City would continue to be a community that invites people to ask the questions that they're struggling with as part of their journey and their relationship with you. But God, in the midst of a particularly violent world, we pray that you would help us to see Jesus more clearly every day. To see Jesus' heart and Jesus' character and Jesus' sacrifice. And God, to watch for these opportunities to express our love and our appreciation for what you have done for us by loving and appreciating the people in the world that we live in. Help us declare, God, that you are the God of forgiveness and mercy who even went to the point of death to redeem us and to save us and to call us into relationship with you. You are not like the other gods that people have imagined. Jesus, you are the one true God sitting at the right hand of the Father, interceding for every one of us, offering us your grace and your mercy and your love and inviting us to change and to give up violent ways and to embrace loving ways. We pray for the world, God, today. We pray for all the spaces in the corner of this globe where there's so much violence being done to so many people. We pray by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would bring your peace to every part of the globe. God, that you would bring your shalom peace where people thrive and have enough and are emboldened and empowered and taught about who they are in you, God, that they would feel free to be the people that you created them to be. God, they wouldn't be afraid for their children, for their family, for their life. But God, you would create space for them to thrive and and live in the world the way that you designed it. Make your church, God, an instrument of this peace and not of violence. And help us to see on a smallest level and the largest level how we can join the work of sharing your shalom peace with the world. Thank you, thank you, thank you for the gift of your son. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Receive this blessing before we sing our last song. May the peace of Jesus Christ be over your life this week. Wherever there's anxiety or turmoil or struggle, confusion, violence, oppression, may the peace of Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit come over you. May you sense that God is with you in the midst of these struggles and that God understands what it's like to endure difficult things. And that no matter what happens in your life, God will always be with you as you put your trust in Him. In Jesus' name.